Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit byteradio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Betsy Hill, who, along with Roger Stark, co-authored the book, Your Child Learns Differently, Now What? The Truth for Parents. At the core of learning are mental processes called cognitive skills, which are how our brains learn. It is the how of learning, not the what of teaching, that matters. By understanding this, you can help your child turn on their learning superpowers. This book includes a guide to helping parents understand how brains learn and how their child's brain learns best. The knowledge will empower parents like never before. Not only will they understand why their child reacts the way they do to school, they will be able to help them. Betsy Hill is a mother of three boys and an award-winning educator. She studied the neuroscience of learning with Dr. Patricia Wolf and other pioneers in the field, coining the term neuroeducator. She is a former chair of the Board of Trustees at Chicago State University and teaches strategic thinking at the Lake Forest Graduate School of Management, where she received a Contribution to Learning Excellence Award. She received a Napree Trailblazer Award for sharing her knowledge, skills, and passion for the neuroscience of learning in classrooms around the U.S. She holds a Master of Arts in Teaching and an MBA from Northwestern University. For more information, you can visit the website mybrainware.com, and that's M-Y-B-R-A-I-N-W-A-R-E.com. And with that, I'd like to welcome Betsy to the show. Good day, Betsy. Good day. So glad to be here. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. This particular topic of uh, children and learning and, and all the kinds of crazy stuff we went through the last couple of years is really in the forefront of, of a lot of discussions. So um, I'd like to start, if you would, maybe you can give us your view um, of the state of education, where, where it stands today. Oh, that's a big topic. So the state of <laughs> education. <laughs> Well, okay, so the state of education is um, not where we'd like it to be. Um, you know, the the pandemic was a really a big wake-up call for a lot of parents and certainly for a lot of educators as well. And I think, you know, we've, we talk to thousands and thousands of parents all the time around the country and around the world, um, and frankly, around the world had some of the same issues that we did here in the U.S., But parents, you know, got to see their children right there sitting beside them trying to do online learning. 
and trying to do learning in an environment where, in many cases, those parents were the, the major, um, ec, you know, academic and educational support for their kids. And what many of them found was that their children weren't learning the way that they thought they were. They, they weren't having the kind of academic success. They were struggling with whether it was aspects of math or reading or organizing themselves or focusing during that Zoom meeting, all those kinds of things. And so it was really um, the first time that many of them had focused on why isn't my child learning? What is what is going on that's such a struggle? Because it seems like it should be easy. We're in school. We're supposed to learn the basics of reading and math. But those, in fact, are not the basics. And how we learn is really at the core of where many of those struggles are. Yeah, it, you know, it seems that, you know, that um, upfront personal interaction with their children you know, and seeing them learn um, is, is something that, you know, would, was very different. I mean, you know, that those are the kinds of things that would happen in the classroom. Um, and, you know, usually it's just the, the teacher who can um, actually see the processes, you know, that the children go through when, when you know, they're, they're teaching subjects. So um, I'm sure it was an eye-opener. For, for for parents. So um, let, let, let's talk about cognitive skills. Can you tell us or tell the audience um, a, a bit about, you know, what are cognitive skills? Sure. So cognitive skills are basically mental processes. They're the processes our brains use to take in information from the outside world, to understand it, store it, retrieve it, organize it, think about it, make decisions. So it's just, it's basically how our brains work. Our brains are learning machines. And, uh, you know, the uh, that's what we, that's what they've evolved to do. And they're constantly learning. You know, it's really obvious to us when our children are very little because they just soak up learning from the environment. Um, but we're learning throughout our lives. And, so these processes are things like attention, um, and there are different kinds of attention, for example. So sustaining my attention and being selective in my attention are different mental processes. Those are called cognitive skills. Various memory skills, visual processing. So sometimes we think about vision as it's either 20-20 or not, but after um, information comes in, in the back of our brains, it goes through all kinds of different processing to make sense of it and to understand it and to relate it to other things and to make it so that we can remember it later. So auditory processing, visual processing, um, skills that help us integrate all of these pieces is called sensory integration. And there's a special group of cognitive skills called executive functions. Uh, parents are hearing that term more often these days, and most educators are familiar with the term um, for good reason, because executive functions are the skills that are the most predictive of how we're going to do in life. They're just how we're going to, um, how much money we're going to make when we're grown up, how we're going to keep track of and get organized, whether we're going to have a good job, 
whether we're going to have a good marriage, whether we're going to be healthy and, and be contributing members of society. And that seems like a lot of weight to put on a few skills, but the three core cognitive skills that are called executive functions are working memory, which is how we hold information in our minds while we think about it. So that's one. Another one is inhibitory control, which is our ability to stop ourselves from doing something we otherwise would do. So, for example, if I get mad at somebody, I don't punch them in the nose. That's inhibitory control. And cognitive flexibility. And cognitive flexibility is how we shift gears when the world around us changes. So, for example, if we're trying to um, solve a problem in a particular way and our first approach doesn't work, we need to back up. We need to think about a different way to approach that problem. That's cognitive flexibility. And these three, cognitive flexibility, working memory, and inhibitory control, are, again, executive functions and have a huge role in both learning uh, in the school as well as behavior, as well as pretty much everything else we do in life. Yeah. So with these um, executive functions, um, are, are there ways of measuring, you know, those the, that particular level, uh, a particular level of competency or, or um, you know, yeah. a level of achievement? Right, yes. So, and that you make a good distinction there because we all have the, the ability, we all have, um, you know, the ability to develop uh, these skills. In fact, they do develop, they mature over time. Um, these executive functions, which uh, take place mostly in the front part of our brain, right behind our forehead, um, develop uh, after some of the other basic processes like vision and hearing and things like that. So they develop, but they may not develop as well. They may not be as strong as um, they could be. And there are um, absolutely ways that you can assess them. Now, many parents are going to be aware of um, difficulties when their children have difficulty sustaining attention. Um, mm -hmm. And that is part of the inventory control. When I can ignore distractions and when I can screen them out and I can stay focused on something. So those are something that the kinds of things that parents can observe. Um, to some degree, but there are also um, formal cognitive assessments that are used to measure how good these skills are relative to one's peer group. So, for example, we can take um, assessments, and there are a variety of different ones that are used by psychologists and in education and a variety of different disciplines to measure these, and it will tell you that you working memory, for example, is at the 50th percentile. Well, that means that you perform better on a working memory test than half of the population, and you performed worse than half of the population. So you're right there in the middle. Um, and we can, can measure those. And when we know that they're strong or weak, we can do a couple of things. One is that we can help strengthen them. So if there are weaknesses, and we normally think about things as these skills, these cognitive processes as things you just have or don't. But the fact of the matter is we can strengthen them, just like we can go to the gym and make our muscles stronger. 
And so we can strengthen those to help strengthen those those weaker areas. But at the same time, we can also um, help ourselves, our children, our students understand about our strengths and help us use those to be better learners, to be more efficient and effective learners. So when we know what our strengths are, when we know how strong our cognitive skills are, we actually can, it's very empowering. We can, we can do a lot with that information. Okay, well, that, well, that's good to know that there are those tools, the measurement tools and um, ways of, you know, strengthening, you know, so that, that, that uh, children can fulfill more of their potential, you know, than, you know, than they might otherwise. Um, yeah. So, uh, I, I have a story about potential. You know, we talked well, so mm -hmm. We don't really know what the potential of the human mind is. And so trying to figure that out, and when my kids were growing up, they would hear a lot in school that they weren't working to their potential. And it used to drive them nuts. In fact, they called it the P word and said, oh, my gosh, now there's the P word again. <laughs> and the point was that the solution that they were hearing was, you know, you're not working to your potential, therefore you're not working hard enough. And if all you would do is just work a little harder, maybe you could reach that. But sometimes it's not just about working harder. Sometimes it's about developing those skills that you need to be more efficient processors of all the information and the things that you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, so it's kind of a case of not working harder but working smarter, <laughs> kind of being more empowered exactly. um, to be yeah. Um, now, what, I, I've read that you believe that, um, you, that there emphasis on, that we put too much emphasis on, on teaching, you know, um, and not as enough on learning. So can you talk a little bit about that and what, um, you know, with children having such, I'm sure, varied degrees of, um, you know, those executive functions, um, how difficult is it to, you know, teach, you know, in a way where, you know, the learning is really given more attention? Right. Those are great questions. So um, when we talk about learning and teaching, very often we hear teaching and learning, and we always make sure to reverse it and talk about learning first because if learning's not happening, it doesn't really matter what else is going on. Um, and there are a lot of kids who come home frustrated or who are sitting at the end of that um, classroom session on their computer um, who haven't learned very much. And there's so much pressure on teachers today to cover the material, to cover the standards, to teach certain things. Um, and I talk, and I, so it's not a, um, uh, it's not blaming teachers at all. I was a high school teacher myself a number of years ago, and, um, and I didn't, if I knew what today, what I, half of what I knew then, half of what I know today, it would have been quite a different experience. But we, we, as teachers, get focused on what we're supposed to teach, what the, 
our students are supposed to, the knowledge and the skills that they're supposed to acquire, and whether or not they've done that. And not making sure that we know we have the content knowledge and expertise to be able to convey that and to organize it and to, to chunks of information that are classes and lessons and units and all the other kind of things. But we don't as teachers, I didn't, and most teachers today still go through their teacher preparation programs without ever hearing the word brain and without ever really understanding exactly what's happening when the brain is learning. And what's happening is that the brain is physically changing. Learning is a process, actually a biological process in our brain. Learning involves the creation and strengthening of connections among neurons. So we have about 85 billion neurons in our brains. A ton of neurons, all these little cells that communicate together and they connect together into networks that allow us to learn and think and plan and do all the stuff that we do. And so it's actually, you know, in order for learning to happen, there have to be physical changes in the brain. So when we focus on the teaching part, we don't always focus on how each brain has to learn because each brain has to construct standing and the information and the knowledge on its own. So, and you see this all the time when you have, you know, uh, um, teachers, and many teachers do a really great job of this, of trying to connect whatever they're teaching to students' prior information. So if you're teaching about um, uh, farm animals, then you're going to mm-hmm. want to show them pictures once ever been to the zoo and the farm and the, those kinds of things. Um, and if they don't have, if they've never seen it, you know, if you've never seen a cow, you've never seen a pig, you've never seen a horse or a chicken or whatever, and you don't know what that looks like or how it's supposed to behave, you can provide all kinds of information, but there's little understanding that's going on. And so we have to help kids connect the information that we want them to know to the schema, if you will, or to those networks um, that they already have built and that they already have understanding of. Yeah. yeah. You know, when you were talking about the neural networks, um, you know, the term neuroplasticity, you know, um, comes about with, with the idea that, you know, the, the brain, you know, does have that ability to, to change its wiring, you know, and, and I think, you know, it used to be, you know, the thought was, was that, you know, the brain was kind of pretty much set, you know, you would, I mean, with, I'm sure, some changes, but but the fact that, you know, that plasticity, you know, is there um, really, you know, opens up the idea that, you know, just because we're thinking one way, particular way right now, you know, doesn't mean that we can learn, can't learn another way. And, and rewire our brain to to work more efficiently, I guess. Efficiently or to think differently. And you're abstract, right? if you think about it this way, if if you literally couldn't change the brain, you would never be able to change your mind. And we change our minds all the time. Uh, <laughs> at least we hope we do. We hope we have that facility <laughs> to be able to do that. I mean, there was a, a lot of controversy when, humans started to believe that the earth was round and not flat. 
And that required us to adjust a whole bunch of different things and, uh, you know, change all the stories about people falling off the earth and all those kinds of things. But what we, what neuroscience has figured out is that the brain is far more plastic, that's far more malleable, far more changeable than, than people have thought and well into, throughout our lives, basically. Obviously, it's easier, it's more malleable, it's more plastic when we're young. Um, and there are times in our lives when we are better suited to learn different kinds of things. So we learn language just amazingly uh, easily when we're young. Uh, and then it becomes more difficult, as anybody knows who has either tried to learn or tried to teach uh, a foreign language in high school and beyond, it becomes much more challenging. But it can be done. Um, and and you can actually, um, you know, I think back to when I was, because I taught foreign languages in school, in high school, um, and learning French, most uh, non-native speakers of French speak with an accent. And if we're American, we have an Americanized French accent, and if we're German, we have a German French accent, and we bring whatever our traditional accent is because our brains basically prune away um, early in life. We get rid of the connections that would have been able to hear all those other sounds, so it makes it much harder. But with intense training, you can actually develop um, and improve and get much closer to a native French accent although it might be in my case because I spent some time living with a family in Belgium, um, by a little more Belgian than it is Parisian, uh, and so that's what I used to hear when I was in France, but that was okay with me. Um, mm -hmm. And then the, the same is true for these other processes, um, even though the, they seem like they might be difficult. So the brain's ability to um, see a bunch of information at a glance, our, you know, our, using our peripheral vision, being able to screen, uh, scan the um, soccer field or scan um, a page in a book, all of those skills can be trained so that we become more adept at them, and uh, as can all of these other skills that we've been talking about, which is incredibly good news because it means we're not stuck. You know, we've thought, many of us, and many of us have grown up believing that intelligence is pretty much fixed. You come into the mm -hmm. world and you, like you've got to sign this IQ before you were born, and when you take that IQ test, it tells you what you are, and that's what it is. But that is, now we're understanding that that's no longer the case. I mean, it never was the case, but now we're understanding that it's not, and that we can actually improve all of these component skills that are part of intelligence, our reasoning skills, our memory skills, our thinking skills, our focusing skills, all of that can be developed. So, you know, and, and I understand the idea of, you know, when we're, you know, born, and, you know, the, the idea was is that, you know, our IQ was kind of, kind of set at birth. Um, when we have a case where children um, have, you know, incredible IQs, you know, um, at a very young age, um, how does, does, I mean, is there a genetic component that, um, you know, that when we're born, you know, that, 
that's basically kind of what we what we come in. Is is there a genetic component with intelligence? Yeah, that certainly is. Um, so intelligence, like everything else, is guided by our genetic code. And so we are predisposed and we, you know, have probably within certain limitations. But within those, it's far more affected. And it's sort of, you know, we used to talk about the nature versus nurture kind of situation. It's the same old debate. And what the, the neuroscientists and the geneticists and the people who study this have all pretty much concluded is that it's not nature or nurture. It's not even nature plus nurture. It's nature times nurture. So there are just a very complex relationship that mean that it's, um, you just have a lot more, um, ability to develop things than, than anybody really has previously understood. And it's the kind of thing where, um, now I had was trying to think of an example that would would uh, would make sense here, um, and I sort of lost my train of thought a little bit. But I know you're going to well, ask another question. Right. I'm back on. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Um, uh, one one of the things that you know there was there was a term that was used um, in the book, um, the idea of neurodivergent children. So, um, can you tell us, you know, what what does that is that just mean that there's the different, um, you know, skills, cognitive skills of children? What what does neurodivergent mean? Yeah. So we were talking about intelligence before, so I want to come back to all those mm -hmm. things. So neurodivergent okay. is, is the term that's ref used generally to refer to uh, children with, um, like, ADHD, um, autism, um, nonverbal learning disabilities is another one that would probably go into that. So that are, they're just, they're wired differently, and they learn dyslexia is another um, story which could be considered in that class of neurodivergence. And so it's, you know, it's, you can get into trouble real fast here because there's no, there's no, you know, average is not average. There's nobody that has, that I have ever met and that I've ever seen test out that has all of their cognitive skills right in the middle of, you know, what would be typical for their peer group. Mm -hmm. you, we all mm -hmm. have some weaknesses. And neurodivergence is just, it's like a spectrum. Neurodivergence is, huh. is means that they are, you know, far enough out of the mainstream that it is difficult for them to learn the way that we assume in school and other places. So um, those parents who have children with autism or ADHD or some of these other are very familiar with that. And when you were talking about earlier about highly intelligent children, you also come across um, children who are have high intelligence in some areas, but also struggle in other areas. Sometimes this is referred to as twice exceptional. 
So mm. exceptional at the high end and exceptional at the low end of some cognitive process. And we see kids like this all the time where they have some just amazing strength. So they may be able to reason very well with spatial information. They just, you know, they, they're, those are the kids that can, you know, when you're uh, about to go on a family vacation and you're standing in the driveway with all of the suitcases sitting in back, in back of the car, they can instantly look at the trunk and figure out exactly how everything's going to fit in there. Um, they're the ones that can take things apart and put them back together. Uh, and uh, it's not one of my skills. I wish it were, but it, but it isn't. And then, mm-hmm. but they, they may struggle with verbal memory. They may struggle with uh, working memory. They may struggle with some other things, which means that it's really hard for them to show what they can do. Those are, they, they're these stumbling blocks. And when, you know, a lot of kids who are very bright and very capable. Um, another example is we see a lot of children who have wonderful reasoning skills. They can think through problems of all different kinds in all different ways, but they are slow, have slower processing speed. It takes them longer. And so they're, you know, those hands are not popping up in the classroom to answer the question. But if the teacher waits a little bit, they're going to get probably a much more insightful answer. But those are the kinds of things that can stand in the way of kids showing what they can do and how smart they are. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would think that, you know, children that, you know, kind of fall into that area where, you know, where it kind of takes a little bit longer, but, you know, possibly more insightful, um, I would think that that would be a very frustrating um you know, a challenge for for children like that because you know it's it's you know where they can see others you know with you know great speed being able to you know answer a question and yet you know they the children themselves recognize that you know I get it but but there's also much more to it than you know what what people are saying. Right, it can be um, incredibly yeah. frustrating. Um, it, yeah. Frustration. Um, shutting down, anxiety, people just, you know, talk about a lot of different things when they have children. Um, and, and it doesn't have to be that ex- the extreme of twice exceptional. Whenever you have skills that are, you know, different levels of strength, it doesn't have to be all that far apart to make learning situations unpredictable. So what mm. the students that you're describing, and many others find is that they're in a in a classroom situation or any kind of learning situation, and some things are really easy for them, and some things that seem like they should be like it's all math, but some math is really easy and some math is really hard, and it doesn't make any sense to them, and so they can become very frustrated, very anxious, and basically conclude that it's you know that they can't do it. My goodness. Well, we're, we're a little past halfway through the show, Betsy, so I'm going to take just a quick break. And then when we come back, I'm going to you know, maybe look a little bit uh, closer at, at those, um, you know, children with, uh, with, with exceptions, you know, um, and see how, you know, improving cognitive skills will help them, okay? Sure. Great. Okay, great. Everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. Hello. 
This is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, nature photography, calendars, and 5 by 7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, ByteRadio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone, thank you for staying with us. Again, today, my special guest is Betsy Hill. She, along with Roger Stark, co-authored the book, Your Child Learns Differently, Now What? The Truth for Parents. You can find out more by visiting the website, mybrainware.com. That's M-Y-B-R-A-I-N-W-A-R-E.com. Okay, with that, we're back. Bessie? Yes, I'm here. Okay, great. Okay, so I want to, you know, talk a little bit, you know, just go into a little bit um, of detail about, you know, the neurodivergent children. Like, for example, you know, um, children with dyslexia, um, what, you know, what kind of attention to improving cognitive skills can help them read better or can help them read better? Yeah, so dyslexia is, you know, a very complex, um, I guess, disorder, although, you know, many dyslexics are extremely bright and extremely, um, mm-hmm. you know, you can look at all kinds of famous people that you can uh, find out that were dyslexic. Um, and sometimes thinking a little bit differently gives them great powers of observation and approaches to things that are not you know, typical, but that are very, very um, enlightening and and positive. So, um, but, you know, reading is something that everybody's expected to do. And so there are a couple things that have to happen. One of which is that that when someone is dyslexic, it means that there are a couple of parts of our brain. You know, I should back up for a second to just simply say that which is something that many people may not really have thought about, is that reading is an unnatural process. So we don't, we, we learn language automatically, um, we as children. We learn whatever language we're immersed in. Um, twins uh, sometimes develop their own secret language between them and things like that. So language is something that the human race has, has evolved for, um, and the human species has evolved for, and, and so we, we speak, but we didn't evolve to read, at least yet, you know, uh, 
maybe several generations down the road, we will find that, uh, that reading is something that has been now structured and built into our brains. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, to do that, we need to connect up parts of our brains that don't naturally um, connect mm. in the way that they need to be able to read. So we, to be able to recognize words, we, we actually use part of our visual system and uh, that allows us to recognize a word as a word with components that are built up of letters and that the letters correspond to sounds. And it seems sort of obvious especially those of us who to learn to read with typical instruction, is not um, automatic. And so those um, children will need special intervention to practice and to make sure that they understand um, and develop that um, what's called phonemic awareness, the awareness of sounds and then how they correspond to letters to enable them to actually decode or sound out words. And so that all has to happen. There's a whole science of reading that has been developed, and there's a lot more emphasis on it actually these days in using the science of reading for reading instruction in school. And that's great. That really needs to happen. But the other part of it is that some of these other skills, these cognitive skills, cognitive processes that we've been talking about, are also necessary for reading. And so... That can also be a stumbling block, and there are things like sequential processing. So that's our brain's ability to keep things in the right order when they come into our brain. And obviously, mm -hmm. if you think about the word uh, bat and the word tab, B-A-T and T-A-B, those are the same letters, but they're obviously not the same word. Uh, just a very simple example of how the, the order of the sounds matters and therefore the order of the letters matter. Um, okay. You think about how you build fluency. So now, you know, we've learned to sound out words and now we have to build up um, our ability to do it automatically so that we can read fluently. Um, things there like visual span or processing speed and how much we can take in at a glance. And then when we have, we get to comprehension. Um, and I hear from a lot of parents that their children can read pretty well out loud, but they get to the end of whatever it is and they have no idea what they've read. They really don't understand it. Um, and if you think about working memory, um, here, reading along something, you're taking in pieces of information, you're holding them in your mind while you think about them. That happens in working memory. Working memory is actually our conscious processing. And so if that is, has limited capacity or it's taken up with other things, decoding and whatever, then comprehension is going to suffer a lot. And so when we can strengthen these underlying cognitive processes, as well as in the case of dyslexia, helping build this, uh, the reading pathways in the brain, um, mm -hmm. that's what's going to have an impact on kids' ability to read. Okay. Well, that's that's great. <laughs> um, and that's um, you know really breaking it down to um, you know, to the basics. You know, really, you know, in order to <laughs> to make that change. Yeah. Well, we see that we don't yeah. always look at those basics and understand that mm -hmm. that those are where the blocks are because usually 
if children are struggling with reading or struggling with math or any other part of the curriculum, most of the time that is not something that we can attribute to teaching and curriculum. Most of the time there's something going on at that more foundational level. And if you think of cognitive skills as the foundation, it's like the foundation for a house. If you try to build the house without building a strong foundation, it's going to crumble and fall apart. And learning is the same way. So when we strengthen these underlying, all of learning becomes much easier. It's actually more fun. It's more enjoyable. Um, and kids, you know, really uh, yeah. have much more positive attitudes and much more self-confidence when they have these skills that they bring to the learning process. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I see that. Um, now, is there any relationship between cognitive skills and mental health? I would think that maybe it's the case where, you know, is there, is there any um, connection between the two? There is indeed. And uh, the, there's been a lot of research in the last several years that uh, is emphasizing that more and more. Uh, it turns out that most mental health conditions, so everything that you've heard of from um, depression to bipolar disease to disorder to um, uh, schizophrenia and all that, you know, everything you can go down. So all of those um, uh, mental health conditions have a cognitive impact. And basically what they do is they make it more difficult for us to, for our cognitive skills to, to function well. And you can look at it, you can twist it around, and sometimes it's easier to understand by looking at it the other way around. So that's not that cognitive skills cause these conditions, because they don't. Right. Those are, uh, okay. but, they, but they bring with them the, these um, cognitive challenges, just like, you know, um, dementia and all those kinds of things. We are, by definition, uh, impact mm -hmm. cognitive skills. But if you think about, if you think about a child who maybe has a little weaker processing speed, like you mentioned before, or maybe just has difficulty shifting gears when they're not getting something, then learning's going to be stressful. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we all probably have that feeling, and, and maybe it's because we had some weaker cognitive skills, or maybe we just didn't study for the test that day, but having that feeling of, I just don't know this, I, I, I can't do it, I can't respond. And that level of stress, actually, our bodies don't, can't tell the difference between physical uh, threats and psychological threats. Our bodies react in the same way. And so what it does is it causes us to go into fight-or-flight mode. We've all, and so we're ready to punch, we're ready to run. And what it does is it tamps down or starts to shut down our cognitive processing. So we can't think as clearly, we can't remember as clearly, we can't do all those cognitive processes as well. And so um, stress and anxiety are definitely can, those can be causes of, of cognitive challenges, um, but it, it's, that's a, probably the most real everyday example that I can think of to, to remind people how yeah. learning can be 
stressful situation and that we need to understand that it's not just um, try hard or whatever. We also have to sometimes deal with the um, uh, psychological or mental health component. Right, exactly. Wow. Um, before we, you know, get, uh, we only got about uh, 50 more minutes, but I wanted to talk a little bit about um, Brainware. So and it's, a, it's a learning company with a, the tag of making people smarter. So tell us, tell us about what, what, what is Brainware. So uh, Brainware um, refers to all of our, our programs, but primarily everything we do is about cognitive skills. And it's about helping um, assess and uh, build stronger cognitive capacity. Um, and it came, it, it all started uh, many years ago um, with people, uh, speech pathologists and a vision developmental expert. So speech pathologists and, and auditory um, specialists work with language, hearing, production of speech, those kinds of things. And um, many in the audience may have been to or had their kids go to some a speech therapist or an auditory therapist to help with specific challenges. And there's vision specialists who help with particular kinds of visual processing, so the ability to um, um, track things with your eyes efficiently and whether or not you're eyes converge as something gets closer to you and all of these other kinds of things. And what happened was these two um, clinicians worked with a lot of kids and they could, parents would come to them when they had, their kids had learning difficulties and they would use an assessment called the Woodcock-Johnson Cognitive Battery. And that's one of the gold standard cognitive tests that is, helps measure all these skills, as you, you asked about that before. It's one of those mm -hmm. that, uh, that was used and by a lot of different um, clinicians as well as in education. And they would, they would go through this process of, the, you know, very um, intense, usually takes, depending on how much of it you give, a day or a day and a half or two days of, of testing, one-on-one, -on -one, and then they would be able to say to a parent, okay, here's where your child is strong, here's where they're weak, here's why learning is difficult. And the parent would say, great, now what do I do? Well, they didn't have an answer. And they become, became, they could basically say, here's the problem, but they didn't have a lot to offer. And so they started to work together, uh, realizing that the brain isn't just language, and this isn't just hearing, and it isn't just vision and got to have all these processes working together. And they started to collaborate and try various um, exercises, basically. Procedures is what they called them, but, you know, they were things like, um, um, you know, looking at a bunch of numbers and having them disappear and then trying to remember them. So that what that's mm. doing, you're trying to use your visual system to remember what you saw and to um, make sense of it and to recall it and all that kind of thing. So they would start to work together with all of these different exercises. And over about 40 years, the, this group grew to about 300 clinicians, all working together, trial and error, and they built this set of exercises that was very effective 
So it's helping a lot of kids um, really reduce their learning struggles and be much more successful. But it was very expensive. You know, families would pay anywhere from fifteen to twenty-five thousand dollars or more to have this experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was not something that was accessible to lots of families. And what my colleague Roger, my co-author on the book, um, realized it was it was his insight actually that said if you can marry this heavy-duty clinical therapy with video game technology, because he had been very active in the early days of the video gaming industry, you could take this and make it accessible to a far broader group of of people. And so that, it wasn't easy, but that's basically what happened. And so today, we work with families, we work with schools, we work with, um, in some cases, in workforce. Um, but helping um, assess and develop these cognitive skills so that everybody can be just, you know, learn more easily, the learning process is more fun, far more effective, better grades, better test scores, all of that kind of thing. And, And the important thing is that when you do cognitive training in the right way, it actually translates into all of these other activities, whether it's academics or just everyday life. Yeah. Well, that's that's the way to approach it. I mean, you know, there's uh, you know, there's a certain generation that group that's their world. You know, I mean, and it's kind of you know <laughs> meeting them, meeting them where you know where they are. You know, and you know, and, and there's a lot not of good that can come out of that. But like I'm sure you said, it probably wasn't a, an easy task to do. Um, so no, this what, was actually yeah. right at the time that the internet was coming up. A lot, there were a lot of technical challenges um, at the time. But it turns out that video games have a great pedagogical or, or learning value. And if, so that the engagement, the immediate feedback, um, the the ability to do things over and over again and to get really good at them. There's just a whole bunch of things that a, that a good video game technology can do that's very consistent with good uh, educational practice. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, um, this has really been a, a good chat, uh, Betsy. Now, you and, and Brainwave – uh, or brainware, excuse me, um, are on social media, correct? Our Facebook, LinkedIn, um, you know, Pinterest, Instagram. Uh, yeah, we're on all the the major social media, so you can uh, Twitter and just look for Brainware Safari mm-hmm. or Brainware Learning, and that's how you'll find us. Okay, great. Well, I'll be sure to connect with you. Um, so any maybe final words or any, anything um, that we didn't cover that you might want to say before we close? Well, I think the most important thing that, that – and the our reason for writing the book was to help give parents hope. Um, I actually had a call from a mom yesterday who had – come across our information and was very excited to talk to us. And she said, I just I didn't know what to do. I my 
and my son doesn't know what to do, and he struggles, and it's so hard. It's so hard for him. He feels so bad about himself, and he feels so uh, just incapable. But I, I, I knew there had to be something, but I just hadn't come across it. And she said, now, now I have hope. And when parents understand that there are underlying reasons for kids' struggles with learning and that these can be addressed, they can be understood, and that inside every child is uh, someone with just amazing talents and wonderful things that they bring to uh, learning and to the rest of life, it's just such a positive, hopeful thing. And parents, she said, I'm just not going to give up. And that's what I said, never give up, never give up. Don't ever give up because they're, um, it's just uh, amazing what the kinds of changes, the impact of neuroplasticity, and it's understanding how we learn uh, what that can do for parents and for kids. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and those are tools but for a lifetime, you know. I mean, the, you know, they're, it's one of those kinds of basic set of uh, tools that that you'll, you know, find useful in many situations and in years to come. Yeah, probably some of the most important skills you'll ever have because we cannot, we don't know what the jobs of the future are going to be. Um, the yeah. technology, the world is changing so fast that, if the most important thing I believe we can do for our kids is to help them learn to be really good learners because they're going to have to learn their jobs and they're going to have to relearn their jobs over and over again uh, throughout their lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to thank you for your time today, Betsy. I really enjoyed our... Oh, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. You're, you're very welcome. Again, everyone, today my special guest has been Betsy Hill. Uh, we've been talking about a book that she co-authored with Roger Stark, and the book is called Your Child Learns Differently, Now What? The Truth for Parents. And, again, you can find out more about the book as well as the other services um, by visiting mybrainware.com. That's M-Y-B-R-A-I-N-W-A-R-E.com. And everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. And until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Blog Talk Radio, Amazon Music, and Audible. To follow our show on any of those platforms, visit byteradio.me and select the one you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ByteRadioMe. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.